<clears throat> from the beginning to the end in 13 weeks. The fastest back-to-back -back Bible study you'll ever do in your lifetime. 13 weeks from Genesis to Revelation. I think it's funny because I don't even know how that's possible. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit will open our minds to understand the Scripture and that to understand your word is to know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. So we, we pray that prayer tonight expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Session number 19, <clears throat> uh, there's 31 of them all together, and the return home. As much as we don't like it, life with God has always had periods of waiting. In fact, let me say this. If you study faith, the word faith, I've concluded there is no such thing as <clears throat> legitimate biblical faith without waiting. Faith is waiting. You don't wait for something you already have, so faith is, in fact, waiting. Um, how long did the Israelites from Judah wait in captivity in Babylon? So if you go back to where we've been last week in sessions before, uh, the northern kingdom's gone, and now the southern kingdom, they're gone, they're all gone. Everything's gone. And they've been carried off to Babylon. Here we go, Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's their captivity. I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. What place? Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then, at the end of the 70 years, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me, and you'll find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I, God, will be found by you, Israel, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will, gather you from all, I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. Let me say something. That is a, that is a prophecy that has a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. That is not just fulfilled at the end of 70 years. It is partially fulfilled at the end of 70 years. It is uh, fully fulfilled later in human history. Let me read it. I will gather you from all the nations from places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place which I carried you in exile. Now that's Jeremiah, 70 years, and then you'll come back. Now this is Ezra, Ezra. In the first year of King Cyrus, of the Cyrus king of Persia, first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So Ezra is going to describe how God's going to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy through a Persian king in the first year of his administration. Isn't that cool how the scriptures are going to tie together? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. What's the proclamation? This is what the Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord. Now, we're, we're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me 
the Persian king, all the kingdoms of the earth, and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Anyone of his people, he's talking about the Jews that have been exiled in Babylon. Anyone of his people among you, and he's sending this out to the Persian Empire. So any Jews in the Persian Empire, anyone of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, what's he saying? If, these Jew, if you find Jews in your neighborhood, when you get this letter, let them go. Let them go. Don't you try to stop them. Because God has put it in the Persian king's heart that this is part, partly his job to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. How crazy is that? Verse 4, it gets even better. And the people of any place where survivors, Jewish survivors, may now be living are to provide him, these Jews, I want you not only to let them go, I want you to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. We're also going to fund the project. Now, God moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill his plan to get his people back to their homeland. Cyrus did not merely release them and send them on their way, but he made sure they had whatever they needed for the journey and the rebuilding project. Remember this verse from last week's chapter? Let's go back one week, Daniel 4, 17. And by the way, I think I told you, you'll find this four times in the book of Daniel, which I think it means he wants to make sure you get it. Okay, it's four times. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. So, who's in charge of the kingdoms of men? So, he puts in Cyrus's heart a Persian king. You know where Persia is the, right now? That would be Iran. Okay? They were enemies. So, he's going to put in the Persian king's heart the desire to build a Jerusalem temple. He's sovereign over the kingdoms of men, which means he's in charge. And, and he's going to, he, he, he seated Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar and he unseated him. And he seated the Medo-Persian empire and then he unseats them. And then he brings Alexander the Great and the Greeks and he seats them and he unseats them. And he brings the Romans and he seats them and he unseats them. He's sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Why, why do I make a big deal out of that? When you start worrying about government politics, you just need to read these verses. Everything that's happening, he knows. He knows. He's got this. So God appointed a Persian Gentile king to see that his temple would be rebuilt. If you're an outsider and you saw that, you would say, that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. Did God, so let's, what's the big deal? So here comes the logical next question. Did God need a house to dwell in? 
So what are all these people coming back to do? They're going to come back and build the Jerusalem temple. Why? Because 586 BC, 70 years earlier, it was burnt to the ground. It's gone. It's gone. So does God need a house to dwell in? Does he? Does God need a house? Is that what, is that what this is about? I need a house. Y'all go build me a house. As if God couldn't build a house if he wanted a house. So let's go back to King David. I want, I want to examine this. 2 Samuel 7 verse 1. After the king, that's David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now David wasn't happy about that. And that's good because that's his heart. He thought God ought to be at a higher place than what he was. Now let's go to 2 Samuel. Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. So, now understand, that's a long time before David, okay? So he's saying, I never did have a house. Are you the one that's going to build me a house, David? I, I went, I traveled from Egypt all the way through uh, into the promised land without a house. I have been moving, here's God to David, I have been moving from place to place with a tent, a tent as my dwelling, and wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So does God need a house? Is that why they're coming 70 years later to go to Jerusalem to build a temple? Does God need a house to dwell in? Does he need it to shelter him from the rain? So he doesn't get cold. Uh, to be able to... Or is there something big that most people never think about? There is a bigger purpose of God in the desire for a temple to be rebuilt. In fact, I find this just uh, explosive in the mind to understand Christ. Why does he want a temple? Um, Proximity, and, and that's a word, I wish I didn't use that word. He wants to be near his people, okay? Why does he want a temple in Jerusalem? He wants to be near his people, but there's a problem. And the problem is iniquity. So you got proximity, he wants to be near the people, but you've got iniquity, which means our sins keep us at a distance. But he wants to be near us, but our sins keep us at a distance. So what's the solution here? The temple. And you might say, I don't get it. No, you will get it. What's the solution to proximity and iniquity? He wants us close, but our sin keeps us away. He's going to, in the temple, create a way for the shedding of blood to make a way for us to approach him. And he will do that in the temple by the law of Moses and animal sacrifices. He will make a way for man to be able to approach his presence and pro find proximity with him, closeness with him by, and by the blood 
sacrifices. See Jesus yet? So how do you deal with sin keeping us away from God? Do you see Jesus yet? So Genesis 3.8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. This is Genesis, Adam and Eve. What do they have? Proximity. They're close. They walk with God in the cool of the day. They're not afraid. They're close. There's no sin. And they hid from the Lord among the trees. That's when proximity, sin made separation. James 4, 8, go to the New Testament. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. But how? Wash your hands, you sinners. But how? Purify your hearts. But how? You double-minded. How? How? What's the way to come near? In the temple, it would be a blood sacrifice. It would be a way to approach the presence of God. God had always desired a unity and communion with his people, but our sin continuously keeps us from him. That's why it was necessary for the continual shedding of blood on behalf of his people. And that's why the temple was created. I need you all to get this before I can move on. Why the temple? If you'll go study the tabernacle, which was the tent before it became a permanent building, something was happening there all the time. What? The continual shedding of blood. Why? Proximity. It made a way for man to find the nearness of God. What's the blood about? It is atonement. It's a sin payment. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So you got the priesthood shedding blood and shedding blood and shedding blood and shedding blood and shedding blood. But it never stops. Why? Because the sin never stops. Right? It's easy to see the ultimate solution of this problem. Jesus. So let's go to Hebrews 7.27. This is so important. This is like this missing link. Excuse me. Unlike the other high priest. Now we're talking about Jesus. Unlike the other high priest. What did the other high priest have to do in the Old Testament temple and tabernacle? Continuously shedding blood. Continuously shedding blood. Continuously shedding blood. Every day he had a continuously shedding blood, right? Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. Uh Uh-uh. First for his own sins. Why? He doesn't have any. See, this high priest is totally different. He doesn't have to go in there and all this blood. For his own sins, he didn't have any. And then for the sins of the people. Well, he did have that issue. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So what does that tell you? That he would replace the the temple need to continually sacrifice blood 
because he became the Lamb of God himself and put himself, his own blood, as one final payment for the sins of all mankind. You don't need to do it again. The high priest in the time of Moses and even in the, the other time, he had on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, he could go in and he would have to offer a sacrifice for the people and that would give them one more year in the presence of God. He didn't, Jesus doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to do that. But as has always been the case, even when God went out of his way to bring the people back into the homeland so they could once again have proximity with him, they eventually turned from the most important thing. In this case, it came after opposition arose to the temple rebuilding project. Now, let, let me kind of give you some new context. So the people are coming back. They're, they're coming back and they're fired up. We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to reestablish the priesthood. We're going to do animal sacrifices. We're going to regain communion with God. And, and what do you think is going to happen? When they get back to Jerusalem, opposition immediately rises to try to stop them. And, and that's part of the spiritual war we're going to touch on. So let's go to Ezra. Chapter 4, then the peoples around them, now they've, they've come back. They've got the, the Persian king's authority to rebuild. But it says, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans to rebuild the temple during the entire region of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So for years, for the years, they, they come to rebuild the rubble of Jerusalem, and all they get is opposition. So what do a lot of people do when they face opposition? They quit. They quit. Church, they quit. First time there's any trouble, I quit. I'm out of here. That's what they're doing. So let's go to Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius. Now, Darius comes after Cyrus, okay? So time is moving on. And they're facing this opposition and rebuilding the temple. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the priest, excuse me, the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel. 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 I love that name son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zehodak. Yeah, that's right, the high priest. So we've got the Jewish governor and the Jewish high priest. And Haggai is the prophet. He's telling them something. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, the Jews coming back, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Okay, listen carefully. Why did they come to the conclusion that the time is not right for us to rebuild the house? Because they're facing opposition. And the opposition seems overwhelming, so they quit. So they say, the time has not yet come for us to rebuild the house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It, is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while the house, while my house, the temple, lies in ruin? So he turns it around on them. You all are spending your time rebuilding your houses, but you're not spending any time rebuilding mine. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much. By the way, I'd love this part. L listen. While they were facing opposition, they quit the temple reconstruction project. And their crops started to fail. And everything that they had once prospered at stopped working. It's like they suddenly had supply chain problems. And they suddenly found that the foundations that once seemed so secure around them were now shaky. And nothing seems to be working like it used to. Sound familiar, anybody? Listen, listen. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested a little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. His proximity is his blessing. And they had replaced his, the desire to be close to God with desiring to be close to themselves. They had lost the desire to have fellowship with God. Thus, they stopped rebuilding the temple. And what was the temple? Listen, did God need a house? No, God doesn't need a house. The house of God, the temple, represented a way for them to regain fellowship with God. Proximity, sacrifices, the atonement for sin. So you can live together. Be people of the blessing. Matthew 6, let's go to the New Testament. What's Jesus say? Seek first his kingdom. You know what? Before you build your house, build his. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Your crops, your economy, your, your money won't go into a, to a portfolio in the stock market and then disappear. Right? Seek first the kingdom. God's very priority and reason behind his people returning to Jerusalem had become a non-issue on the priority list of the Israelites. And isn't this what had always happened with God's people in the past? In the time of Moses, in the time of the judges, when the people wanted an earthly king, and they got earthly kings, and they're all terrible kings. He wanted to be near them. God wanted to be near them. The whole concept of the Old Testament, when he comes to Moses, he says, Moses, I'm going to move into the community of Israel. Build a tabernacle. I'm moving in. So he sent Haggai and Zechariah to remind them. Let's go to Haggai. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Sounds like the American economy. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, over the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, Joshua, son of Jeho Zehodak, 
the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. That's always a good idea. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. I need to stop on that. When people lose the fear of God, they will naturally lose the fear of sin. And we're there. And that's what this story is about. They lost the fear of God until God showed them that the reason your economy is failing around you is me. I'm doing it. Are you listening? God said, I'm doing it to you. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord, uh, of the Lord to the people. I am with you. There's the proximity. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of that guy, and the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Zehoda, yeah, that guy, and the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. What's he doing? What's, I love this part. He stirs up their spirit. He does something. What, what did he do to Cyrus, king of Persia? He stirred up his spirit. You let him see what he couldn't see before. They came and began the work of the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. He stirred their heart to desire him above everything else. Now let's go to Zechariah. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. What's God want? He wants to come and dwell among his people. I will return to Zion, dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. You remember a few minutes ago I told you that that prophecy had a short and a long-term fulfillment? So does this one. He's going to return and dwell in the rebuilt temple. His presence is going to come back to the people in Jerusalem. But that's not the end of this prophecy. No. I want to go back and read that again. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says once again. Now this it's a future tense announcement. Listen carefully. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand and because of his age, and the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at this time, but will it seem marvelous to me? declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries to the east and the west, and I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Let, let, me, let me explain two points. In 1948, this prophecy was again fulfilled when he gathered people from the east and the west and brought them back and reestablished the nation of Israel in 1948. 
Some of you were alive in that day. He did that. And he's also talking about another event that's even future tense for us. Do you understand that believers that survive the tribulation, I want you to get the wording carefully. Believers that survive the tribulation will live more than a thousand years of age. Do you understand? And that's, this is in here. This is, and I'll show you there's more. Believers that survive the tribulation, who come out of the tribulation, these aren't resurrected bodies. They are regular people that didn't die in the tribulation. Jesus comes to reign on the earth. Everything changes. Satan goes to prison. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And those who are alive will live to be the age of trees, it says. They will live more, they'll live through the entire tribulate, through the entire millennial reign of Christ. More, they'll live throughout the entire 1,000 years of Jesus on the earth. Ezra 6.13. Then because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shether, Bozanai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, and the descendants of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel. And the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, the temple was completed on the third day of the, ninth of the month at Ar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And blood sacrifices resumed. You, re you listen? Why? Blood sacrifices resumed. Atonement for sin brought nearness to God, to the people again. Okay. Let's totally switch gears. The title of this chapter is The Queen of Beauty and Courage. But before I can get to that, let's do this. As we enter into chapter 20, have you ever wondered why the Jews have always lived under such disdain? Why did Hitler hate the Jews so bad that he, you know, he might have won World War II if he had been so focused on the Jews? It's a crazy thing to say, but why does he hate them? Why did he hate the Jews? Why is there always, even today, there's people that just hate the Jewish people because they hate the Jewish people. Have you ever wondered? The word is, you'll hear it sometimes, it's called anti-Semitism. And the average person in the church has no idea what anti-Semitism is because you don't know what a Semite is. You might wonder what the word Semite, where it comes from. It comes before the word Jews were even Jews. And by the way, the Jews were not called Jews until much later in their history. The word Jews comes from Judah. And what they were known originally were Hebrews or Israelites. But they were not known as Jews until uh, we're going to get into the story of Esther. It appears then and then later. But the word Semite... Before there was an Abraham, who would be the first Hebrew, the first Israelite, the first Jew, if you want to use the word. There were no Jews before Abraham. 
He's it. He's the beginning, right? Before there was Abraham, there was Shem, the son of Noah. And the word Shem is where the word Semite, Shemite, comes from. So let's go to Genesis 9, and you find this. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. Now let me give you a story. After, after the flood, after they got off the boat, Noah planted a vineyard. He drank the wine. He got drunk. And he evidently got naked or he uncovered himself to some degree. And in that culture, to uncover your father's nakedness was a curse. It didn't happen. Which sort to tell you a whole lot of how culture has so changed. That exposing the human body uh, was a very protective thing. And, and, and this son comes in and exposes and, and sees his father Noah's nakedness. So when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. But his son's name is not Canaan. He's cursing another generation down. He's cursing the son of his son. Listen carefully. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. Well, the problem there is that Canaan is not the brother of Shem. Ham and Japheth are the brothers of Shem. So a lot of people see this and they come up with these cockamamie ideas of what it means. So let's look. Cursed be Canaan. Blessed be Shem. In that moment, God is doing something prophetically through this event. Cursed is Canaan. Blessed is Shem. Canaan was the son of Ham. What people came from Ham and Canaan? So you got Ham coming off the boat, and he's got a son named uh, Canaan. He comes off the boat. So I'm going to ask you a question. What people came from Ham and then from Canaan? Who lived in Canaan when Moses led them out of Egyptian bondage? The Ites. And specifically, the Amalekites. The Amalekites. But not there's more ites than you can shake a stick at, okay? Cursed and blessed. The battle in the heavenly realms continue. Pharaoh had already tried to kill the Hebrews, the Jewish boys, to stop them from multiplying and, and, and becoming a great nation. So before I even begin this story tonight, you, under, you need to understand that Pharaoh was already trying to stop the upper story plan of God. Why, why did Moses become Moses? Because they were having so many kids that the order from Pharaoh is kill all the male ch children. So they put him in a basket because they're going to come and execute him in the house. So they put him in a basket, send him in the river. God protects him, raises him up to be the deliverer. But Pharaoh was trying to destroy the Jewish people because God was blessing them so much. Blessed be Shem. God's blessing was upon these people. In Genesis chapter 11, you'll find... 
a complete chronology of the family tree from Shem to Abraham as God selects Abram to enter into his eternal covenant to create a nation through which he will bless all the peoples of the earth. But there will be opposition to this plan. The Amalekites lived in the land of Canaan when Moses led the people of Israel toward the promised land. The Amalekites attacked them and tried to stop the upper story plan of God. So I'm going somewhere with this, but you're not going to get it until you get the background. When Moses leads them out, the Amalekites, and they are the descendants of Ham and Canaan. They're under a curse. And here comes Shemites. Here comes the Israelites. God's taken them to the promised land. And the Amalekites, cursed to be Canaan, and the Shemites, the Israelites, are going to meet. Exodus 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites in Revedim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And I don't have time to cover all that, but that's that story where as long as Moses had his hands up or his staff up, they were winning. They were winning. But he got tired. And his arms started to drop. And when his arms started to drop, the Amalekites started winning. So uh, Aaron, his brother, and, Mo, and uh, her both came over and they saw that we got to keep this guy's arms up somehow. So they set Moses on a rock and the two go up on both sides and they hold his arms up. And I, there's a story in there. Every one of us in our life needs an Aaron and a her. So that when we get tired, they come and hold our arms up. So they kept winning. But what's the battle? Now let's go to Exodus 17. This is so powerful. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Cursed be Canaan. The Amalekites. Now understand something. In the time of King Saul, God instructed Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites. What was the last straw that brought down King Saul's kingdom? God told him to completely destroy the Amalekites. I want to erase them from human history. But Saul kept the best animals, and he kept King Agag as the spoil of war. Now, why all this background when the title is the Queen of Beauty and Courage? Here we go. Jewish tradition, which I believe is true in this case, not in the Bible, tells us that Haman was a direct descendant of King Agag. This would explain his hatred for the Jews, even though Agag preceded him by some 500 years. Anti-Semitism runs deep. The story, chapter 20, begins tonight with the battle between God and the adversary, as Haman will try to do what Pharaoh failed to do, stop the upper story plan of God from being fulfilled. It's 500 B.C., and the scene is in Susa, the capital of Persia, modern-day Iran. Babylon has fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire, and excuse me, and the Medo-Persian Empire is in full swing. 
50,000 Jews have moved back to Judah. But here's what a lot of people don't realize. 50,000 Jews have migrated back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, and, and restarted the nation. But many stayed in exiled lands. And what were those lands? Iraq, Iran, and they began families. Mordecai and his niece Esther are one of those exiled families living in Susa during the reign of Persian king Xerxes. Two things happen almost at the same time that will bring this battle between God and Satan into the front lines of human history. Haman, he's the bad guy. We believe he is a direct descendant from King Agag. He is one of the Amalekites that is under a curse. Haman becomes second in command to King Xerxes. So two things are going to happen in the story almost at the same time. Haman becomes number two in command to the Persian Empire. And Esther, a Jewish girl, becomes queen. Coincidence? Coincidence at the same time? I think the New Testament may describe the reality of what's going on here better than I can. Ephesians 6.12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Because what do you got? You got Haman, an Amalekite. He's now risen to power, and he hates the Jewish people. He wants them dead. And little does he know that in the same time, a Jewish girl becomes the queen of Persia. But he doesn't know she's Jewish. Is there a power behind Haman that is attempting to thwart the upper story God, of God? Yes. It's a heavenly power. Is there a power behind Mordecai and Esther that's going to fulfill the upper story plan of God? Yes, there is. So let's go to Esther 2.5, start the story. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish. There is anti-Semitism in the land at that time, and Mordecai, a Jew, knows it. He knows that he is a foreigner, and he knows they don't like him. He knows he's Jewish and there's anti-Semitism. How, how do I know that he knows? Go to verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Why would you forbid her to tell everybody you're a Jew? Because it's not popular. Go to verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality. You understand why they're, why they're gathering virgins? Because he's going to select a replacement queen. And, and so one thing she left off of her resume is, hey, I'm Jewish. They don't know that. 
But verse 20, Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instruction as she had done when, she, when he was bringing her up. So King Xerxes marries a Jewish girl named Esther, but he doesn't know she's Jewish. He just knows she's very beautiful. And for most men, that's enough. He just says, you're it. He and Haman have no idea that God has placed a Jew as queen of Persia. It's as crazy as a Gentile king, Cyrus of Persia, wanting to build a Jerusalem temple. Do, do you see the two parallels? Both of them are crazy. The idea of both of these. Why would Cyrus, the king of Persia, want to build a, a temple in Jerusalem to worship a, a god? And why would a Jewish girl end up being queen of Persia? I totally lost my place in that moment. It'll come back to me. Had Haman known this, I doubt he would have crafted such a plot to kill the Jews. Well, that's pretty obvious. Had he have known, had he had just known, had somebody just whispered in his ears, she's Jewish. Don't bother the girl. She's Jewish. At the same time, Haman came to despise Mordecai. And by the time we get to this part of the story, uh, Haman knows Mordecai's a Jew. He doesn't know Mordecai and Esther are connected. But Haman knows that Mordecai's a Jew. Verse, uh, chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Did you see that? The Agagite. King Agag. The Agagite. Haman, the Agagite, uh, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than any of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to whom? This Agagite named Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Why? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Same story, right? Why wouldn't they bow down to the golden statue? Because we only serve one God. We only serve one God. So Mordecai would not kneel down to Haman. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he, Mordecai, refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. Okay? So now, Haman, the Agagite, the anti-Semite, he really hates this guy. Because he won't bow to me. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, Jewish, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Oh, here it comes. He scorned the idea of only killing one Jew. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all the Jewish people. All of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Persia, 
Xerxes. Killing Mordecai wouldn't be enough to satisfy Haman. He wants to kill them all. There's a battle that rages in the heavenly realms. It's playing out here. Cursed be Canaan. Blessed be Shem. Do you see it? It goes all the way back to Noah. Haman convinces the king to issue an an edict that would create one-day hunting season for Jews. It's what it did. He, he, create, he talked the king into making a hunting season for Jews that lasted one day in the entire empire. And not only could you legally hunt them down and kill them, but if you hunted them down and killed them, you could take all their possessions as your own. And what does that tell you? That would mean a lot because God was blessing the Jewish people and they possessed a lot because they lived under the blessing. Cursed be Canaan, blessed be Shem. One day, and only that one day, was now 11 months away in the story. Everyone had time to plan for it. Go to verse 7. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot in the presence of Haman, to select a day and a month. That's where the Jewish festival of the Purim comes from. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people, the Jews, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all our people, of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate the Jews. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, all of them, the Jewish people. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. Now, you've got to understand something. When this happens, the king's wife is Jewish, but nobody knows it. I guarantee you if Haman knew it, he would not be doing the same, okay? The stage is set. 11 months, the clock is ticking. Haman is happy. He's content. Mordecai tears his clothes and mourns in sackcloth and ashes. Esther will have to decide who she is and what she believes to be true. The moment of truth arrives. Will they take their place in the upper story plan of God? Now, you need to understand something before I read this next part. God is going to come. Mordecai makes it clear. History itself makes it clear. God is going to rescue his people. The question is whether you're going to be in or whether you're going to be out when he does. But he's going to rescue his people. Let me read it to you. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you not think that because you are in the king's house, Excuse me, do not think because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time 
as this. Who knows, Esther, that the very reason you're in there right now is because of this moment that's about to appear to you. I often think about that in my own life, in the life of many of us. Who knows that you are appointed by God to be at a certain place at a certain time for a certain thing that he wants to do through you. And the question is, will you go along with it when it happens? Or will you try to fight it? Then Esther replied, sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Why was that a big deal? Because to approach the king in that Persian culture without being summoned uh, might be immediate death. If I perish, I perish. At that point, she's decided, no matter what happens, I'm in. No matter what happens, I'm in. If I die, I die. God is going to fulfill his upper story plan with or without your help. Mordecai and Esther have decided to join God in the fulfillment of his plan. That very night, as Haman plots the death of Mordecai, verse 1, that night the king could not sleep. This is probably my favorite part of the story. That night, the king, Xerxes, cannot sleep. So he ordered the book of the chronicles of the record of his reign to be brought in to read to him. It was found recorded that there was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Fana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. I'm telling you what a coincidence that he read that that night. So why do I say he's going to deliver with or without you? Who's running this whole thing? Mordecai? Esther? No. No. He's going he's to deliver these people. The question is, you're going to be in when he does it, or you're going to be out when he does it. So the king is, he can't sleep. He bring in these boring documents. And who appears in the middle of the boring document to try to make you go to sleep? Mordecai. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. The attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? He doesn't know who's in the court any more than he knew who Mordecai was in the book. Who's in the court? Now Haman just entered the outer court. Oh my, my, my. So here comes Haman, the Jew hater. He has just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about what? About hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he has erected. So he's coming in to tell the king, I'm going to hang this Jew. And he has no idea that he's just read the chronicles of Mordecai and he wants to promote him. You see, they're going to collide. This thing's going to collide. The king says, who's in the court? Now, Hanan has just entered the court in the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the court ordered, the king ordered. I love this part of the story. God must laugh at our plans to stop his plans. Verse 10. Go at once. The story goes on. I don't have time to go into all of it. Go at once. This is the king 
Haman. Haman, what's Haman come in the office? What's he in there for? I'm going to hang Mordecai. What's he going to leave with? Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get a robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew. You're going to take the royal robe and put him on the royal horse and you're going to lead him around. The very thing that he thought he was going to get for himself, he's having to give it to Mordecai who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Do you think at this point, Haman's got a really bad attitude? Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home. I mean, that's an understatement. He rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his, and, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. They were prophesying and didn't know it. What, what, what do you think that tells you about what they knew about the Jewish people? That if God is with them, you can't win. You're going to come to run. So Haman attends the banquet of Esther with no idea that it'll be his last supper. He ends up impaled upon the pole that he planned for Mordecai. And the king gives all of Haman's property, guess who? To the Jew named Mordecai. And by the way, he, Haman, was very rich. That stopped Haman. But what about the irrevocable edict of the king to kill all the Jews? The king, at this point, puts Mordecai in Haman's job. He gives him all of Haman's money, and he gives him his position as number two under King Xerxes. Verse 9. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of the king Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. The copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on the day to avenge themselves of their enemies. Their cour the couriers riding on royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command. And the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. 
Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe and fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities, I underline this special, became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. Now here's the closing tonight. There are a people still alive on the earth that celebrated the Feast of Purim on March 7th and 8th, two weeks ago. There are a people from a family that God made a promise to many years ago. They're still all over the earth. The Jewish people. Blessed be Shem. It's irrevocable. Paul gives us in the church age a glimpse of this upper story plan of God as he writes the Gentile church at Rome. Listen carefully. I do not want to be you church Gentiles. I don't want you Gentile church to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may become conceited church. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Until the full number of Gentiles comes in. Anybody want to guess what that day will be? A time announced in advance when the full number of Gentiles will come in. And the church age... The time of the Gentiles will close. Israel has experienced a hardening of their hearts, but they still are under the blessing. Look at history. Pharaoh, Balak, the king of Moab, Haman, Herod, Hitler. Remember Ahmadinejad and the current Iranian present uh, Persian Ayatollah? They've all had something in common. Have you ever noticed from the beginning of human history, they all have something in common. They hate the Jews and they made plans to eliminate them, to wipe them off the face of the map. So I close tonight with a quote from the current reelected president, or excuse me, prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. He was in Los Angeles in November of 2006. And he says these words to the world in 1938, Excuse me, it's 1938, and Iran is Germany. And Iran is racing to arm itself with atomic bombs. Last week, I read a, a headline on the Drudge Report that Iran was 12 days from a nuclear bomb. And they've already announced in advance what they plan to do with it, to wipe Israel off the map. Nothing's changed. Iran is... Persia. Interesting. So the question is this. Can you see the irony? Susa was in Iran. And there is a new Haman there today. Will he succeed? Can Iran erase Israel? Can any power erase 
the Jewish people under God's blessing. Will God keep his covenant with Abraham? His covenant with Abraham is that through you and the Jewish people, all the nations of the earth will receive my blessing. So, two more scriptures. Jeremiah 32. This is what the Lord says. Just as I have brought all these calamities on them, and look at the Jewish history, so much calamity, so I will do all the good I have promised them. Fields will again be bought and sold in this land about which you now say it has been ravaged by the Babylonians, a desolate land where people and animals have all disappeared. Yes, fields will once again be bought and sold, deeds signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and here in Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah and the hill country and the foothills of Judah and in the Negev. For someday I will restore prosperity to them. Uh, the Lord have spoken. The partial fulfillment of that, that was Jeremiah as he's getting ready to leave for Babylonian exile. So in Nehemiah in those days, they came and rebuilt and they re-sold land. But listen, until 1948, in this generation where we live, that has been fulfilled. That they, they're back in the land. They're buying and selling the land as their own again. 1967, same thing in Jerusalem. And I'm going to close tonight with an event that is coming. I believe soon it's coming. Zechariah 8.20, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. People from nations and cities around the world will one day travel to Jerusalem. The people of one city will say to the people of another, come with us to Jerusalem to ask the Lord to bless us. Let's worship the Lord of heaven's armies. I'm determined to go. Many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord of heaven's armies and to ask for his blessing. And this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. In those days, 10 men from different nations and languages of the world will clutch the sleeve of one Jew. And they will say, please let us walk with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now you need to understand, in Zechariah 8, God is living in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your divine promise that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. We thank you, Lord, that we could be a part of that blessing through the blood of Christ. And we reverence your name. We worship you. And we ask your mercy upon us and upon the land we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.